welcome to The Near Memo, a weekly conversation about search, social, and commerce. What happened, why it matters, and the implications for local. Here we are again for episode 62 with Greg, Mike, and David on The Near Memo, where we talk about the intersection of uh, local, social, commerce, search, and uh, other things. The list grows longer every day. <laughs> um, but not so, the NBA playoffs. You guys still won't let me get in the uh, <laughs> NBA playoff better, So, Okay. All right. Um, you know, once again, there's kind of too much news to cover, but we pick three items and or three and a half items, as the case may be, and then uh, kind of unpack those for you in about 20 or 25 minutes. Um, and today we're going to lead off with Mike, who's got who's. Uh, dug into some interesting consumer review research and its implications for marketers. So I found this through Jason Brown, who tweeted a summary article from some science magazine, but it's research from the University of Massachusetts Eisenberg School of Management by Zanfei Lei. It's titled Swayed by Reviews, Disentangling the Effects of Average Ratings and Individual Reviews in Online Word of Mouth. Historically, research has leaned on ratings as the primary determinant of driving purchase intent, although recent research seems to have indicated that somewhere in the order of 55% of all consumers actually read reviews or the summaries of reviews, and it's usually in in more important categories uh, and when there's high intent and when there's bigger risks or less known about the brand. And he would, he explored with his co-researchers whether the top three reviews had as much or more influence than ratings. So he had two hypotheses and he developed a three experiment design to separate out this. And they did it with what's called a trade-off design where they would interview, present this information, they manipulated the content of the reviews, not the length and the ratings. So in one situation, they'd have lower 4.2 ratings and positive, two positive reviews and one negative. And the other, they'd have higher ratings, but with negative content. And they determined that the, the, the three most, the three visible reviews, like Google shows, are more, once a threshold has been passed of whatever the rating is that people need somewhere around 4.2. Once that threshold has been passed, then the content of these reviews becomes the primary conversion factor on people that actually look at them. And the way Google presents them, it's pretty easy to look at them. Uh, so I think it may have more influence than than not. So it's just and you're, you're referring to Google Google's presentation of reviews in the business profile panel, correct? Yes, correct. Well, right. That's right. So they do show just review ratings up front, and then you have to go in to see the presentation. And so it was interesting to me just because there's so much focus on ratings and much less focus on content. Uh, also, because you know, obviously there's some questions in product review sites on, and on product pages, there's some question about what's honest and dishonest. And if you show an accurate rating, let's say it's a lower rating, but you highlight relevant reviews that tend to be positive and then give people a click to see the rest of the reviews, is that, how does that work in context of the FTC? And I would contend that's probably okay. As long as it's easy to get to all the reviews, easy to read them, as long as you're transparent about the score, uh, if the reviews you highlight are relevant, 
And they point out that it's equal to a 2% price reduction in terms of the increased conversions you get um, from, so, from resisting. So, that. Mike, just to clarify one thing, because I didn't read the study, um, the top three reviews, whether positive or negative, were, were going to equally influence people. So, in other words, if, if they see positive reviews, they're more likely to buy. If they see negative reviews, they're more, less likely to buy. It wasn't... What, Regardless of the star rating. Right. So... Um, and then how was a negative review concocted? I mean, you can have part, a lot of reviews are mixed, right? Yeah, they took basically the same language and they just added negatives to the exact same reviews. Just So they, they supplemented a neutral description with a with positive superlative. Positive and negative. Superlative. Negative, yeah. right. And test. Well, I mean, just anecdotally, and, that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, people, you know, we've got like this migration toward four plus review, you know, anybody who's kind of going to be in the top ranking group is going to have in most cases better than a four star rating. And so you have to look right. at the reviews, um, which Google doesn't make it entirely easy to do. They, they show you the review distribution um, and they show- And they make it e relatively easy to see the three, but if you want to see them all, yeah. That's multiple clicks in, and you get and you get. It also depends on the surf. Depends on the surface, Greg. I think that the Maps app, for example, it's a lot easier than the desktop business panel to click around and see more reviews. Which so. is which is amusing since I never use Maps for reviews at this point. So I mean, I kind of I kind of do, I suppose, but not really for for you know like you don't use Maps as a, as a search uh, interface. Not, uh, a discovery discovery search interface not not really i mean i use it in limited contexts or i use it for navigation but um uh i'm using apple maps more these days but that's a different conversation um so what so what's the practical takeaway mike for for marketers i mean the practical takeaway is that once you've hit whatever the threshold is 4.2 then i think the work becomes making sure you've got enough content in your reviews, better, more informative content in your reviews, and more positive content in your reviews, so that one, at Google, those are more likely to show. And in your own site, I think the practical implication is, if you're going to show a summary, you can design it to highlight these more positive aspects uh, as appropriate while still showing your actual review rating. So it would it would mean there's no need to hide your actual review rating the way Fashion Nova did it, um, as well. So I think it depends on the context, but I think it means businesses, particularly with more expensive products and higher risk purchases, need to focus as much on content as they do on ratings or maybe more. It, it's, it's, it's interesting, uh, not to sort of open the door to another discussion, but it's relevant in the sense that um, uh, the role of negative reviews in establishing the credibility of positive reviews is something that um, there was a sponsored piece on uh, Search Engine Journal, I think, that was one of the review, you know, reputation companies. And they said... Yeah, power, power, no, somebody, power. No, it wasn't power reviews, it was somebody else. But but basically, the, the larger point was that you, you shouldn't be afraid of negative reviews. They help establish the credibility of positive reviews, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's truth to that. So I don't know how that kind of element plays into this or not. You know, if you're sort of shaping your most prominent reviews to look positive and you've got a great uh, star rating, you know, uh, 
I mean, is there a is there a risk there that somebody's going to see that as fake or or manipulated in some way? I don't know. I think as long as you make it relatively easy to access all the reviews and order them in a way that the consumer wants, I think that's really what the well, obligation and, is. And, and so many summary, yeah, sorry, many many uh, e-commerce sites will give you the ability to sort and filter reviews by most recent, right. highest, lowest, and so on. So. Right. And I think behavior at that point, once somebody starts reading reviews, probably differs uh, a great deal. I think there's a lot of unique individual individualization that goes on in terms of how you relate to the content. Their theory, though, was in the top three that the language, the simplified context of only three reviews was easier for people to remember. And thus, they latched onto that rather than the distinction between a 4.3 or a 4.4 or a 4.5, they felt it was easier for people to remember the positives from the simple view of only there, three reviews. There are a lot of fascinating... Go ahead, David. I was going to say it would be interesting. Um, not It's not really a follow-up. It's more of a different survey. But, you know, we I think it's pretty widely accepted at this point that the threshold is somewhere in the 4.2 range for, you know, I won't consider a business who has or a product that has under that rating, Bright Locals found it, these guys found it. Um, but I'm and there was corollary research that said four seven was the upper threshold where trust started declining. Well, so that's they thought they were likely to be fake. What is the optimum number? You know, and and I bet you that that varies based on the industry and the the product or service under consideration. Like, what actually is the optimum number where maybe people don't need to actually read the reviews as much because that that sort of lodges as like okay. This is a good, you know, this is this is a good enough heuristic uh, for this being a legitimate product that has a couple problems, but it's overall worth buying. Maybe that's a piece of research for us to do. I think it's four, four to four, six or four, seven. I would say f- so. That's this is why I think it's interesting, because for me, it's probably four, eight. Just personal. that's the highest. No, that's the sweet spot. That's where I'm like, yep, this seems like the right thing to buy. Yeah. It, although if it's something that you're going to depend on. You're going to read the reviews, and if it's something that's a throwaway item, it's like it doesn't matter, blah blah blah, right? You're not, you may not. I think it depends on how you relate to reviews, how much money you're spending, how critical the well, purchase is, it, it, right? There's a threshold beyond which you're going to start reading reviews, it, it, right? It, 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 that's right. So I think that threshold for me is probably it sounds like it's higher than Greg. I would say four at four four. I'm going to actually want to know, like, okay, what are the downsides to this product? Well, this is this is this is a to be continued conversation because there are a lot of interesting aspects here, and certainly reviews will come up again and again and again for us. And maybe we should consider doing some some research on this. But I want to move on since we've um, uh, talked at length about that to Google's announcement about Performance Max, which is its sort of automated ad um, program uh, replacing shopping campaigns and local campaigns, and the significance of that for small businesses, agencies, and enterprise brands. So David, why don't you speak to that? Sure. So yes, I, you, I believe linked to this, Greg, and one of the I should have written about it, but I linked link, Minimized links. Yeah. Well, there's still an opportunity for that coming yeah. up. Um, but so so I discovered it through our, our own newsletter. I hadn't seen it on Twitter or anything like that. Uh, the it, it, it seems to me to be more of a rebranding of smart campaigns than a brand new product. Um, there are certainly, you know, more bells and whistles, but I, I took a pretty deep look at smart campaigns, uh, probably just about a year ago and actually kind of went through the process as if I were a local business, I think a local sort of like it company, um, you know, trying to get more leads and that sort of thing. 
Um, and the, the screenshots from the Performance Max uh, announcement that Google came out with this week look very, very similar to that same Smart Campaigns interface. So I do think it's sort of an iteration yep. of Smart Campaigns rather than a brand new, brand new product. Um, the, the couple of big takeaways for me um, from from this announcement, uh, there's clearly a real emphasis on uh, Google Shopping as a as a sort of channel uh, that this thing is intended to help. Um, they highlight in the the documentation around Performance Max. They specifically, you know, highlight, hey, if you're on one of these uh, e-commerce CMS systems, uh, you, you know, there's this automated integration. Um, and so I think it's it's to me it's most interesting from that standpoint. I think that the the shopping campaigns are sort of the the e-commerce equivalent of LSAs in uh, traditional local search, where LSA you don't really worry about anything, right? You just say this is this is my business. This is the type of business I am. These are the services I offer. There's no bid management. There's no ad copy. There's no creative, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These product sort of smart campaign or performance max campaigns now for for products are largely similar, right? You've got the image of the product, the description of the product, the price, and then Google just sort of runs with it. And so it strikes me that it, this is um, their sort of continued investment in this kind of thing really puts at risk some some of the strategic value, if not all of the strategic value that paid agencies for e-commerce companies uh, can offer. Um, I think it's a great thing for small companies that wouldn't be large enough to afford a decent agency to help them um, with paid advertising. But I bet you're, you're gonna, we're going to see even larger uh, e-commerce retailers who are currently using an agency to help them with their Google ad spend. Uh, smart ones anyway, I think we'll probably A-B test these campaigns versus the ones that the agencies are working on. And while I would expect that the agency ones still perform a little bit better, by the time you add in the cost of that, the, the maintenance cost, the management fee that the agency's charging, I'm going to guess that these smart campaigns are, or the performance max campaigns are going to perform just about as well, if not better. Um, and so I think it's it, it does reflect a continuing threat that I think the, the automation of Google ads pose when you have a, a product or a service that can be sort of described as a commodity in the way that LSAs do in local and the way that the shopping ads do in, in e-commerce search. So. And increasingly shopping ads do in local. That's right. That's right. Uh, we're now seeing many more shopping ads in local. And of course, there's the integration of the uh, Google business profiles in the Google Merchant Center now. So this could sort of bleed into uh, local agency, local oriented agencies that work with retailers um, that sell. Well, products, the, the pushback sure. to that to that point, though, I would say is the 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 customer service dimension that agencies provide to to both enterprise clients and to local businesses. Uh, because Google isn't going to give you any human interaction. They're just, it's just going to be a dashboard. And so there's a, there's an interpretive layer and a support layer that agencies can provide that I think has value. And also if you have an agency that's running multiple multi-channel campaigns, right? They're managing multiple social search, SEO, and so on and so forth, then it's less likely that the, that the, that the enterprise is going to cut cut them off. Now, maybe they would reduce the scope of the engagement or something like that. But I, I, I don't know how many standalone paid search agencies exist these days that would, you know, that where they would. Oh, I don't think that they're standalone paid search as 
agencies, but I bet you they have clients for whom paid search is the lion's share of the retainer. That, that may be true. That may be true. I, you know, having been in a uh, large-ish company recently, um, I can tell you that people don't have time. A lot of people don't have time to do that kind of due diligence. You know, it takes a lot of discipline, I think, to do what you're suggesting. I, th- I think it's smart, but I think there are people, there's inertia, you know, just around writing the check or whatever. So I think that while some people will do that, a lot of people won't because it just takes time and energy and people are, you know, tapped out in terms of their capacities. And I know there's a lot of skepticism, and I think justifiably so, that among agencies that smart campaigns don't perform or performance max campaigns don't actually perform at the max uh, relative to what an agency can provide. Um, but again, I think I, I think that's much more true when you're talking about traditional AdWords, you know, with headlines, ad copy, landing pages, that sort of thing. Um, I think that in shopping and, and LSAs, it's a totally different ballgame. So. Yeah, I, I um, we were talking before the call started about um, where this began. And it really, it, this sort of automation push really began with universal app campaigns in about 2015. And that sort of marks the beginning of the, the move toward greater and greater automation um, on Google's part for what's that, for whatever that's worth. So that's, you know, eight, seven, seven years ago, the while. Um, okay. So for our final item today, we're going to talk about ads, but in a different context, or we're going to talk about marketing in a different context, talk about Twitter. Clearly the headlines, the technology news headlines have been dominated for the last couple of weeks by Twitter. First speculation over whether Musk is going to take over the company and now speculation about how Twitter will change in the wake of his uh, acquisition, assuming it still goes forward, because there's some people that have cast some doubt on that. And, um, you know, rather than get into the politics or whether China is going to hold its relationship over him or whether Musk is a reasonable guy or a budding fascist or whatever you want to say, um, uh, I, I think I think it's interesting for us to think about what is the future for marketers and advertising on Twitter under a Musk, you know, uh, scenario. And um, my own assessment of that would be that it's uh, even though Twitter just showed an increase in users and it improved results this week uh, in their Q1 earnings, I, I think that there will be negative consequences or there will be a negative impact on advertising on Twitter if Musk goes forward with many of the things that he's talked about, reducing staff, um, uh, you know, opening up uh, the content to less moderation, and so on and so forth. In particular, the sort of, if it, if it becomes a um, cesspool, as I called it in, the, in Monday's uh, newsletter, or maybe that was Wednesday, um, I think it was Wednesday, actually. Uh, then brands will be scared away, and so I think that I think there that that operates as a little bit of a disincentive to completely throw content moderation away. But I think also uh, people will just get scared about operating in an environment where there's more vitriol than there is today. What do you think the impact of opening up the APIs to alternative uses, displays, presentations, but including advertising in that? How do you think that? Well, I think that's an interesting. I think that's an interesting uh, scenario. That's what existed in the beginning, of course, and then Twitter shut all that stuff down. Really, maybe before its ads products were, um, you know, fully operational. I don't remember the timeline. I think that's really interesting. Some of the techno- technological stuff or the 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 
um, product changes that Musk has talked about uh, might be very good for Twitter. Um, I don't know to what extent. Go ahead. Yeah, and I, yeah. I was going to say that I think that the the topic you just brought up, Mike, in terms of the sort of the open API, more open API, and um, we we even saw the Ben Thompson uh, Stratechery post this week about you know potentially splitting Twitter into essentially two different companies. Um, and I think that it's to me it's an open question as to whether Musk is even going to care about advertising revenue. Um, from Twitter, because there could be so much more on the the data side of things, which certainly seems to me to have been his, you know, more more in his wheelhouse than advertising. Are you uh, talking about data, so data licensing? Data I don't licensing know. deals as a source of revenue. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I would say that that to, uh, if I had if I had to place a bet on where Twitter is going to where where Musk in particular is going to make the revenue he needs to pay off the interest on the loan that he took that he's taking out to buy the company, um, I would probably place it more on the data licensing side than the advertising side. Um, I don't know that there's going to be. I, I'm not. I, I unless he has an incredible idea, which he very well may, for how to radically alter the advertising um, piece of Twitter. Like I just, it doesn't seem like a platform that is really very well set up to maximize ads in the same way that Facebook and Instagram are. You're just not like the, the, the main lining of information. I think that's Ben Thompson's term no. doesn't lend itself to ads nearly as well as this more passive, like, Oh, what are my friends doing? What are, what are these celebrities up to um, in the sort of Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok? Well, things, I mean, so. it, you know, the interesting, one of the interesting points that was made, I think in an article in the information was that, um, Twitter has has neglected to really build good performance ad tools. Uh, they just they have just done a poor job of execution with performance advertising. So you know you may be right that Musk doesn't care about ads, but that's an area it seems of of, of opportunity. I, I looked up how much Twitter made in ad revenue in 2021, and it's only four and a half billion. Which is which that's is nothing. nothing. So you could yeah. well be right that there's a bigger opportunity, at least at current levels. <laughs> with data licensing. But I mean, I don't know how much growth opportunity there is over time well, there. Mike's, Mike's laughing, but I mean, what was well, Google's revenue? No, 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 I, I know. It's just so amazing to me that the three of us could say, oh, four and a half Well, it's nothing. not nothing in the app. <laughs> you know, I mean, I know it's not nothing. And it's nothing compared to his net worth and to Google's right. gross sales. I get all that, but it's still got to be something. Well, Google made it's Google, for example, billion. yeah. So, so Mike, it's obviously not nothing in the abstract, but it's 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 nothing relatively speaking, which is another conversation about the the just the concentration of wealth in in a very small number of companies. But just to put that in context, Google just announced in Q1 this week, um, or whenever it was. My sense of time is totally distorted. Um, <laughs> Fifty-four billion in ad revenue. 50. That's not their total revenues. That's just Ad revenue. That was just wasn't that just search though? I thought, no, that's I thought ad, there that's was another ad, well search layer is different. I mean search is search is a component of that, but that includes I think YouTube and in uh, and uh, and okay. display. I'm just looking at a top level number. And how much was Snap? Oh, you can't make me look up all these numbers right now. I'm not <laughs> probably, probably also nothing, Mike. Well, it Snap, was also you know, nothing. Snap is really <laughs> Uh, Snap is kind of on the on the rise, sort of. On yeah, the it, it's it's, it's more yeah. Snap has Snap has kind of overtaken Twitter. You know, Snap and Twitter were sort of peers, and Snap has has uh, has uh, improved and is growing much more than Twitter. But you know, I think one of the reasons why Twitter 
is such a heated topic. I mean, this is something I was thinking about this morning. You know, why are people so worked up over Twitter? You know, it's just one of many of these companies out there. Um, is because it's kind of the last place where uh, there's a kind of common information source, even though that's not really true. You're not reading the same newspaper. Mm-hmm. You're you're seeing a, a very dynamic uh, product, but it's this it's it's the one place now where everybody sort of congregates and sees information. That used to be the case with the evening news in decades past, and even certain newspapers. And now the media landscape is so fragmented, and people are so polarized, and there's such uh, echo chamber, uh, you know, kind of activity happening that there's there's kind of nothing left like it. And so I think Twitter does represent that, at least symbolically, to people. And so they don't want it to be become, you know, skew one way or another uh, entirely, um, for what it's worth. But I, 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 I mean, I think whether it's whether Musk abandons advertising and goes to data licensing, or whether Twitter becomes a sort of a toxic place for brands. I think it's going to be a place where the future for ads is less bright than once might have been, for sure. Yeah. On that on that note, on the toxicity, so I wish I could remember who uh, tweeted this, but essentially they they were saying that oh, guess what? There's a there's a social network that already tried the Musk uh, sort of unfettered, uncensored information model. It's 4chan. How well did that turn out for them? Yeah, so. I mean that's it's it's another conversation about why things go in that direction, you know. Um, but but at least yeah. at least uh, one reason may be that a minority, a relative minority, twenty five percent of Twitter users are responsible for almost one hundred percent of the content. So you've got a lot of people consuming. This is like reviews, Mike. You've got a lot of people consuming, but many many fewer people actually generating the content in this case. And actually, that's I have a survey that says just that information. Although it's interesting how the non-producers have changed over time. But okay, and I with agree. that, we are out of time, and we'll see you next week for episode sixty-three. As always, thanks for listening and subscribe to Near Media, uh, and we'll see you see you in the future. Thanks for joining David, Mike, and Greg. To stay on top of the latest developments in local, subscribe to our newsletter at nearmedia.co. We'll see you next week.